Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Riverside. A couple of quick announcements to hit while the kids are making their way out to class. Jam camp is full. And so uh, if uh, you're signed up for that, great. If not, Mitchell said, like, out of 65 total slots at that camp, we've got like 40 of them. So they're going to need to change the name to Riverside Camp or something. But uh, anyway, uh, July 3rd barbecue and fireworks here at the church. That's next Sunday night. And uh, they do a thing at Lions Park that night with a great big party and uh, festival. And then at midnight on the 3rd of July, they launch off their fireworks. And uh, so we always do a thing here where at about 8 o'clock we have a uh, potluck barbecue and uh, we provide the hamburgers and the hot dogs and you guys bring sides and desserts and things like that people will go back and forth to the to the you know to the park but you don't have to you have a nice place to park this is a good jumping off spot plus if you don't like being amongst the mass of humanity this is also a great place to watch the fireworks from and uh, actually our parking lot fills up with people that don't go to church here somebody said one time <laughs> Somebody said one time, we should just pass a collection plate and see what happens. <laughs> but we decided not to do that. Anyway, um, that's the 3rd of July. So uh, if, uh, if you want, join us that night. Um, and then Alaska summers, always uh, people are out enjoying the, uh, the outdoors. If you don't, you get a little twitchy. We know that. And so if you find yourself in September looking back and thinking, gosh, I haven't been to Riverside in months, don't get the feeling that you can't come back. Um, or that will look at you and say, where have you been? You know, we're always glad to see you. And so uh, then this September, actually, we're starting a brand new lesson series uh, going through the story of the Bible from creation to uh, revelation. Um, and uh, so that's going to start in the fall. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. We haven't done it in about six years, I think. So um, Today, though, we're still in the midst of this lesson uh, series on the book of James. And uh, last week on Father's Day, we looked at this question, uh, what, you know, if, if David was a man after God's own heart, then, then what were some of the signs of that, of that kind of heart in David's life that David exhibited? Today, I want to ask the question, okay, so what does God's heart look like? Because as we're going through the book of James, it's like I'm starting to notice all these correlations from what James is saying to some of these things, these uh, uh, events and occurrences and things that David did. And so uh, last week we looked at one of his greatest successes. This week we're going to look at some of the things that he wrote about God in the book of Psalms. Next week we're going to look at, when we continue to talk about this concept of spiritual warfare and resisting the devil is what James is going to talk about. We're going to kind of talk about what it looked like when David made some mistakes and and failed monumentally, but how he responded to that failure. So, but this week, like I said, this portion of James that we're in, as I looked at it this week, I started to see it from a whole different perspective than I used to see it. Um, as we read through it, you're going to notice it seems awfully harsh, right? And I think it is a severe war warning to the people uh, about where they were getting to in their lives. But now when I read it, more than just picturing James shaking his finger and scolding and lecturing, I see James more like saying, did you forget who you are? Did you forget who God is and the relationship that you have with him and what that can mean for your life? And so with that in mind, I'm going to read to you this passage of James that we're in. Uh, and then we will go back and talk about, okay, so who are we? Who is God? 
What does his heart look like and what does that mean for us in our lives now? So James chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. James says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. And so he uses all of this inflammatory language, right? Adulterers, enemies of God, friendship with the world. It's like all of these sort of catchphrases that, again, it's like when I first read it, I'm like, ooh, man, he is really letting them have it. But the next time that I read through it, I'm thinking, yeah, he's really sort of trying to say, did you forget who you are? And so as we go through today, what I'm hoping to do is talk about who are we to God, right? Because I think that's one of the things that set David apart from most of the other people, uh, maybe who have ever lived, is that David saw God differently than most of us see God, and that changed the way that he lived his life. Now, James, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that, um, that, that James is trying to tell his, his church, his, his congregation, the people who he is the pastor over, he's trying to tell them how to get through the roughest times that, I mean, I don't think you and I could possibly imagine what these people are going through. Persecution, well, I'm guessing the people in the Middle East right now that are dealing, the Christians that are dealing with ISIS, they are probably reading James and they have an idea of what he's talking about. That's what these Christians that James is writing to are going through. And you know what James tells them? It's really fascinating. He's talking about all the things that are happening to them. And he says, you want to know how to get through this? You want to know how to prepare yourself for when those times come? Here's what you do. You remember who you are. And maybe more than that, you remember who God is. Because who we believe somebody to be has an awful lot to do with how we end up relating to that person. Let's watch this. Diane Decon. You saw Diane Decon? Something, huh? Oh, how did she look? She looked great. Oh. She asked about you. She asked about me? What, what did she say? How's George? <laughs> George? She said George? She remembered my name. Diane DeCon remembered my name. She was the it girl. <laughs> yeah, she asked for your number. I think she's going to get in touch with you. Okay, I'm telling you right now. If you're kidding around, I'm not going to be able to be a friend anymore. I'm serious about that. You got that? I got no problem with that. Good. Because if this is a lie, if this is a joke, if this is your idea of some cute little game, we're finished. Expect a call. It's not kidding. Now, I should tell you... <laughs> ...that at this point, she's under the impression that you're a, uh... A what? A marine biologist. Yes. Why am I a marine biologist? I may have mentioned it. 
But I'm not a marine biologist. Yes, I know that. So? Why, you don't think it's a good job? I didn't even know it was a job. Oh, it's a fascinating field. Well, what if she calls me? What am I supposed to say? Algae. Obviously plankton. <laughs> I don't know what else I can tell you. Uh, oh, I, I just got back from a trip to the Galapagos Islands. I was living with the turtles. And so, we'll come back and see how that whole thing plays out in a few minutes, but how this lady relates to George has everything to do with who she thinks he is. Um, how George ends up behaving in his life has everything to do with who he believes himself to be. And I think that's fascinating insight into human behavior and human psychology because that's that's sort of the way that things work you know you hear psychologists say fake it until you make it you know act as if you are what you want to be and you will get there type of thing and that's not too far off from what the bible has to say but but more than than knowing who i am maybe more important than that is is remembering who god is and how he sees us and like I say, D David, David just had this unique way of looking at God, at seeing God, and that changed the way that he related to God. So James, when he's telling his parishioners how to handle this horrific suffering that is coming their way, basically what he does in chapter 1 is he says, here's what you're going through. Suffering, trials, trouble, hardships, temptations. And the way that he says to handle that is, he says, you stand before those things. Uh, if you were here for, I think it was our first lesson in this series, we talked about this word that James uses that we translate into our English Bibles, let it grow. Talking about our perseverance, our, our, our patience and perseverance so that we can handle what's going on. It's translated into English, let it grow. In the Greek, it's just one word, and it means stand. <laughs> Uh, and actually, it's the only time it's used in the Bible, this particular word. It means to hyperstand, to sort of like dig in and hold your ground. Then James goes on and he says, now let me tell you how to prepare yourself so that when those tough times come, you can hold your ground. You can, you can, you can stand before it. And he talks about how to become more like Jesus, about what the character of Jesus looks like and, and practical ways for us to develop it and to work it into our lives. That's James's remedy, prescription for the, the, the horrific suffering these people are going through. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul talks about almost the same thing. But he, you know, James is really practical. James is really down to earth. He doesn't get real lofty and philosophical. Paul does. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about this metaphorical sort of uh, armor of God that you can put on in order to stand your ground. Um, in the, the verses right before this, he talks about that we're not in a fight against flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle. And he says that our, our battle is really against the, the, the spirits, the, the, the forces of darkness that are behind, that this is what's behind all of these physical sufferings and attacks that the people are going through. And he says almost the same thing as James, stand your ground. He says it three times in this part of 
of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and this is the third time. He says, stand your ground, putting on, and then he, he explains what the armor of God looks like. Now, next week we're going to go on and we're going to talk about the armor, the defensive um, aspects of it, uh, the sword of the spirit, the sword of the word of God that he talks about that's sort of our offensive and defensive weapon. But today I want to focus in on this first part, the belt of truth, which is a strange thing to seem, I mean, I don't know about you, I'm like, what, what is the belt of truth? Uh, and if you read through the whole thing, we're not going to right now, but it's like you'll see that like the, the, the gospel, the good news is in gospel, same thing. The good, the, the, that's the shoes that you're wearing. And I, I remember reading it going, isn't, isn't the gospel the truth? And isn't the truth the gospel? When he gets to the sword, of, which is the word of God, I'm like, isn't the word of God the truth? And isn't the truth the way? And it's like, yeah, but there's something specific that Paul is trying to get at. And so I spent this week really thinking about that. What, what is the belt of truth? Now, for a soldier in the ancient world, the belt of truth was sort of like the foundation or the belt of their armor, of their uniform. Um, and the reason it was the foundation was because they wore long robes, right? Have you ever tried to move around or run in a long robe? It's not easy. Um, as a matter of fact, you're at a huge disadvantage if you're in a battle and you're wearing this long robe. So they would do this thing called girding up their loins. And it sounds like a strange thing to do. I never really, I, was, I heard it all the time growing up. I was like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, what they would do is they would reach down and grab the hem of their robe in the back, and they would pull it up between their legs into in front of them and stuff it down into their belt and then cinch their belt up really tight so that they would, in essence, be wearing a really strange-looking pair of pants. But their legs could move then, right? At this point, then, their armor comes into play. But if you've, just, if you've got your long robe just sitting there, it's like the armor doesn't do you a whole lot of good. You're, you're at a serious disadvantage. So the belt was sort of the foundational piece uh, if you forgot that when you were marching into battle, then you could have every other piece of, of armor that you can imagine. It's not going to do you a whole lot of good. So then what would that be, you know, in regards to us with our spiritual battle against these forces of darkness that are arrayed against us? What would this, this foundational piece that, that if we don't have it, all the rest of the armor doesn't really make that big of a difference? And it's probably more than this, all right? And uh, we're not going to settle the debate. Everybody has their own kind of idea about what each of these pieces is. But I, I was thinking this week, what if this belt of truth, this foundational piece, what if it's the way that we view who God is, right? What if, what if that's what made David different than everybody else? Because if you think about it, who I believe God to be will impact every other area of my life, and especially of my faith. How I, who I think God is and how I think he thinks about me will impact the way I read the Bible and what I do about the things that I read in the Bible. It'll impact the way I see the gospel. It'll impact, it'll impact every other area of my life. And I gotta tell you that as I've gone through my own life and my view of God has changed, it changes all of those other areas as well. And so what I wanna do today is just spend the next few minutes looking at how did David see God? Because we have a unique opportunity with him to sort of like a window into his, into his heart because he wrote so many of the Psalms and he said so much about God in those Psalms. And uh, we're gonna spend some time looking at five different things that he 
or five different ways that he sees God uh, and pull from those uh, sort of what maybe then we can learn from that. So who did uh, David, who did David see God to be? Well, number one, David saw that God, he saw him as the creator, okay? He, he looked at God and just sometimes he was just blown away at God's majesty. In uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, it says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place. I mean, how big does God have to be for, for all of this to be something that, that he made? Later on, about a thousand years later, the Apostle Paul would write about Jesus that basically, you know, we sing that song, you know, he has the whole world in his hands. Uh, Paul's idea was he's got the whole universe. Just, you know, it's like he just sort of keeps it going. That that's how big God is. And David, when he looks at God, that's what he sees. A God who plays marbles with planets, right? A God, I, I, I remember um, years ago, one of my friends, she cut my hair, and uh, she had in her uh, station a poster. And it was uh, a drawing of, of God playing golf, okay? And it was sort of like the camera was behind him, and he's looking out this way, and he's got his driver in his hands. And there are a few stars out there already, and there's a star teed up on his, on his tee, and he's getting ready to hit it out into the, into the galaxy, you know? And then there's a pile of all these stars over there waiting for him to get to them in a few minutes. That's sort of the picture that David has of God, and he just looks around. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just looked at something? It happens a lot to me here in Alaska, where I'll look at something and I'll sort of like, it's like I'll lose my breath, it's so amazing. And when David looked at that and lost his breath, he thought, that's, God did that. That's absolutely amazing. And if that's who God is, well then, what does that make me? And what that makes me is very small, right? If God is big, then I'm very small. If God plays marbles with the planets and golf with the stars, well, that's, I mean, I'm, I can't even imagine that kind of <coughs> majesty and that kind of size. Um, yeah, let's watch this. Right now, there are 600 Titleists that I got from the driving range in the trunk of my car. <laughs> drive out to Rockaway and hit him into the ocean. <laughs> now picture this. We find a nice sweet spot between the dunes. We take out our drivers. We tee up and <laughs> that ball goes sailing up into the sky, holds there for a moment and then Because I got no concentration either. 
Um, but God does. And when you look around at what he did, you know, if, if, if he did all of that, that's one way that David saw God. Second way that David saw God was that God is the king, okay? He's, he's not just the creator, he is also the king of the universe. And, uh, well, look at what he says. David says this in Psalm 24, verse 7. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors. Let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Now, if God's the king, then what does that mean? Well, it means that he makes the rules, right? The king is above the law, but he makes laws that we have to follow, right? And so if he's the king, then that makes us his subjects. That means... We have to do what he says, right? No, no question about that. David saw himself as the king of Israel, but he saw God as like, you know, king over everything. Absolutely everything. And that leads to the third thing that David saw God as, which is the judge. What happens if I step out of line? What if I do something I'm not supposed to do, or I don't do something that he's commanded me to do? Well, then what does that mean? In Psalm 9, verse 7, David says, But the Lord reigns forever, executing judgment from his throne. Now, what happens if a person, the only concept that they have of God is creator, king, and judge? What if that's the only way that you relate to God, that you see him? Then what kind of relationship is a person going to have with that kind of God? I mean, it seems scary to me, right? I grew up kind of having that picture of God. Whether the church that I grew up in intended to give me that picture or not, that's the picture that I got. And God was terrifying to me. I was so afraid to make a mistake, which was a big deal, because I made them all the time. And I was just constantly... Uh, basically, the idea I had from the church that I grew up in was... Even if you did everything that you were supposed to do and did it exactly right, you were only so much, maybe you'd get into heaven. Maybe. And so I would spend my life, even once I, once I finally decided, okay, I'm gonna, I, I want to do what God asks me to do. Even once I got to that point, I would be like, am I doing enough? Am, am, am I good enough? Is it going to be enough? Am I going to be okay? It was terrifying. But see, that's not... David's view of God doesn't stop there. He goes on, number four, the fourth way that David saw God was as father, his father. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 14, David says, the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Now, not all of us are parents, but all of us have been children. <laughs> and as we're growing up, there are rules that our parents ask us to follow, right? And when we're really little, if our parents, you know, if we want to run across a busy street to pet a dog over there that we see and our parents stop us, what do we think of? Why do we think our parents are doing that? It's because they're mean, right? They, they don't want us to have any fun. They don't, they don't want us to have what we want. And there, there's no reason at all that I shouldn't be allowed to run over there and Pet that dog. That's what we think is toddlers, right? Now, it turns out there was a very good reason why our parents kept us from doing that. We just couldn't see it at the time. 
As we grow up and we start to mature, we start to go, okay, yeah, I can understand why my parents didn't want me to run across that busy street, but there is no reason why I can't stay out as late as I want to stay out as a teenager, right? That's what we think. And our parents are doing, they, they, that rule, that rule is arbitrary and ridiculous and there's no purpose for it. They just don't want me to have any fun and they don't want me to, uh, to enjoy myself. Then we, we, we mature a little bit more, right? I remember when I got in my 30s and 40s and I had a kid of my own, suddenly I was like, oh, it's starting to make a whole lot more sense now. What my parents said, actually, you know, most of it, you know, I mean, my parents weren't perfect. But, sorry, Mom, she's probably watching from back home. So anyways, uh, but, but they, they were doing what they thought was best for me. And as I got older, I was able to look back at that and go, okay, now I'm starting to understand it. As followers of Jesus, if you read through the Bible, there are all kinds of things in there. It's like we're, we're no longer under the old law. We're under this new covenant that's more about relationship. And, but even in this whole concept of relationship, there are things where Jesus says, stay away from these things and go after these things. And a lot of times, I don't understand why he says stay away from these things or why he says go after these things. And when I first started this whole thing, you know, uh, you remember when, when George was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a marine biologist. What, what am I going to say? When I first started following Jesus, I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What's, what is a follower of Jesus even supposed to do? And so I started, you know, trying my best to figure it out. And at first, I'd read stuff and it'd be like, forgive people. I'm like, why should I do that? They're, they're lousy so-and-sos and they did it on purpose. They knew what they were doing. Why should I forgive them? And then you get a little further and all of a sudden you start to realize that when you... When you hold on to bitterness, it makes you twice as much a prisoner of that hate as it does the person you hate. And I, it starts to make sense. You know, I'm starting to go, oh, he's, he's right. I, I really should let go of these things. Not that it's easy, but I can see what the benefit would be, right? And all of these things like that, as we go along, we start to realize that there are reasons why God says do these things and why he says stay away from these things. And the more we mature, the more that we start to understand that and hopefully... As we start to mature, we get to an age where we say, you know what, I still don't understand why God wants me to do this, but I'm learning to trust him like a father that he knows what he's doing. And so I'm going to go ahead and move forward with him, even though I still don't understand. And hopefully as we do that, then we get to a place as followers of Jesus, as children of God, where not only do we follow his, his plan, his directions, his his family rules, if you want to call them that. Not only do we do it because we don't want to get in trouble and we don't want to get hurt, but because we also, we don't want to break our father's heart, right? There, there comes a moment in time where that happens. And you can see that in David's life, where when he was keeping this idea in front of him, his life was unstoppable. His life was miraculous and beautiful and amazing because, and we talk about this a lot, God pours his power and his resources and his, his knowledge and his wisdom, his very presence into the lives of people who are engaged in this kind of life. Because to pour his power into a life of a person that's like, ah, I'm going to do what I want and I don't care what you say, that would be a dangerous combination. Power of God in that kind of a life. And so God says, you want my power? You start, trying to, you start living within this framework of creator, king, and judge. Don't forget that. 
But don't forget the father part either. Now, if all you do is live within that framework of God is my father, and he doesn't, he doesn't really care what I do, he just wants me to be happy. He just wants me to have what I want, and that's all that God is. Well, then you, 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 you end up in a whole different place, right? And that's not healthy either. You've got to try to figure out how to keep that balance within that framework. And when you do, it's like nothing else that I've ever experienced. But there's one more level to this relationship with God that David had. And that is number five, God's friend. God as a companion. God is somebody that not just do I not want to hurt my father, but I want my life to make him clap with joy. I want him to look at my life and say, hey angels, come here, did you see what he just did? He was just like me when he did that. Did you see that? Did you see what she just did right there? She was, she was selfless when she did that. That was the perfect picture of my son. Petra has this song, um, old 80s rock band, uh, Christian rock band, and uh, they had this song called God Pleaser. And at the end, there's this line where he sings, I just want my life to glorify his son, to make my father proud that I'm his child before I'm done. And I remember I looked at that and thought, what a weird concept to think about living a life that made God look down and say, do you see that? That's what I was, that, that's, that's what I had in mind when I created him. That's what I had in mind when I created her. They're getting it. David, people would always ask him, why do, why do you get so, why do, why, it seems like God likes you better than everybody else. Why, why does God give you so much? Psalm 18, verse 19, David said, he led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. David talked about this a lot, about living a life that made God clap with joy and just beam with pride. And it's a whole nother level. And like I said, when David lived in that place, his life was unstoppable. He, he was a man after God's own heart because he clearly saw God's heart and it impacted everything that he did, except when it didn't, and we'll get to that next week. But when we do this, act as if before we're even there, miraculous things can happen. One more video, we're almost done. Your parents must be so proud of you, George. Oh, they're busting. <laughs> what are those people doing over there? What's going on over here? There's a beached whale. She's dying. Is anyone here a marine biologist? <laughs> <laughs> Save the whale! Save the whale! Save the whale, George. For me. So I started to walk into the water. I won't lie to you, boys. I was terrified. I pressed on, and as I made my way past the breakers, a strange calm came over me. I, I don't know if it was divine intervention or the kinship of all living things, but I tell you, Jerry, at that moment, I was a marine biologist. Just telling the story. Oh, come on, George. Finish the story. The sea was angry that day, my friends. 
Like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli. I got about 50 feet out and suddenly the great beast appeared before me. I tell you, he was 10 stories high if he was a foot. As if sensing my presence, he let out a great bellow. I said, easy, big fella. And then, as I watched him struggling, I realized that something was obstructing its breathing. From where I was standing, I could see directly into the eye of the great fish. Well, whatever. What did you do next? So then, from out of nowhere, a huge tidal wave lifted me, tossed me like a cork, and I found myself right on top of him, face to face with the blowhole. I, I, I could barely see from the waves crashing down upon me, but I knew something was there. So I reached my hand in, felt around, and pulled out the obstruction. John 8, verse 32. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, is the belt of truth nothing more than this view of God that we have and is that the foundation? It may be more than that, okay? But this is a great place to start. Next week, we will come back. We'll talk about the rest of the armor. We'll talk about, uh, James goes on and talks about resisting the devil and he will flee from you, James says. How do we do that? What does that look like? We'll continue that next week. We'll talk about David's failures when he failed to do that and what happened to him and then how he responded and how his response, not his failure, but his response is what is a big part of what made him a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful um, that you aren't just 
the rule giver and the judge when we break the law, but that you are a father and that you want to be our friend. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to feel that. Help us to find a way to live within that framework of, of you as creator and king and judge, but also as father and friend, so that we can have a life like David's that is unstoppable and miraculous and beautiful. And give us the ability, Lord, to live lives that make you proud to be our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Let's go ahead and stand and close with the final chorus. As we seek to follow after God each and every day. My lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the darkness, I will follow you. My lighthouse, my lighthouse. I will trust the promise you will carry me safe to shore.